A moment's prayer before the sermon. Let us pray. May the words that I speak now, the thoughts and the feelings that we all now experience be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The Pope is in Mexico today and on Monday goes to Cuba. What's that got to do with us, you say? The Pope is giving indications that he's not quite sure whether he's going to meet Fidel Castro or not. What's that got to do with us, you say? The Cuban authorities are indicating that they're not quite sure whether Fidel Castro wishes to meet the Pope. I can just imagine that there are lots of messages being sent by intermediaries from one side to the other, so no side gets put out of sorts, no side gets embarrassed to see whether this meeting can be fixed. It's a bit like the Queen of England. If you're going to be invited to something, you get contacted first and ask the question, if you were to receive an invitation, would you say yes? Because if you wouldn't say yes, either because you don't want to go and meet the Queen or because you can't go and meet the Queen, you don't get the invitation. Therefore, the Queen is not embarrassed by anyone saying no, ever. And something like that has doubtless been going on and will go on for the next day or two between the Pope and Fidel Castro. And in times like that, intermediaries make the link so, if you want to see Jesus, what are you going to do about it? What would you do if you wanted to see Jesus, just like those Gentiles in Jerusalem at that Passover time who we heard about in the Gospel reading? Well, obviously, like them, you would be sensible if you wanted to see Jesus but didn't know him, you would start by asking someone who you did know, someone like you, someone who you mixed with normally, who would understand you, you would ask them if you thought they were someone who had some closer contact with Jesus and Jesus' people. And then if you were lucky, that person would go off and talk to somebody who was nearer to Jesus. So these Gentiles, who are all Greek-speaking rather than Hebrew-speaking, find somebody who's in the Jesus movement who's got a Greek name, Philip, Philippos. They go and find Philip because Philip is Greek-speaking like they are and knows what they're talking about. And Philip is on the fringes of the Jesus movement. And what does Philip do? He goes off and talks to someone he's quite often linked with in the New Testament, Andrew. And Andrew was Simon Peter's brother, and he is Aramaic-speaking. He is Jewish, 
And he's one of the first disciples of Jesus. So now we're getting really close. So the Gentiles go and ask Philip, and Philip goes and asks Andrew. And Philip is then taken along by Andrew to talk to Jesus. So if you want to talk to Jesus, if you want to see Jesus... You need to find somebody like you who you think might have closer contact with Jesus in the hope that that person will talk to someone who's even closer to Jesus and then maybe you will get there. You will see Jesus and meet him. But the story in the Gospel, sadly, has the message that even if you do all that, you may not always get an immediate appointment. In the story that you heard, I don't know if you noticed, Jesus never actually meets those Greek-speaking Gentiles in that story. When Philip and Andrew come and pass on the request to him, he doesn't immediately say, yes, bring them to see me. He starts talking about the cost of discipleship. In effect, Jesus is saying, do they know what they're asking when they ask to see me? Do they really understand what they're talking about? Because Jesus is not interested in people wanting to see him, simply to tick him off like a heritage site or a tourist monument. He doesn't want people who are simply going on a tour looking at important places coming to see him. He doesn't simply want people coming to see him because they want to have the ancient equivalent of a photo opportunity to have their photograph taken with him. I love walking around Rome, looking at, watching people outside all the monuments, all the great sites, and they take photographs of them rather than look at them. Sometimes I've seen people stand outside a church or whatever with a poster on it and they take a photograph of the poster or the picture of the place outside and don't even go in. Tourism gone mad. Jesus is not interested in people who simply want to have their photograph taken with him. He's not interested in being treated like a a heritage site. He's not interested in people being able to have a brush with celebrity, as if he were a celebrity. And so his response is to give, through Peter and Andrew, he gives these people a crash course in what he's been teaching his disciples And pretty dense it is. If you read that passage again from John's Gospel, it's pretty close-packed and pretty hard to understand. He gives them a crash course in what he's been teaching his disciples. And what he says is, if you really want to see Jesus, if you really want to meet Jesus, if you want to encounter him and know him, you've got to serve him. You've got to follow him. You've got to be prepared to do things his way. You've got to be prepared to do things in God's way. You've got to love God and the world like he loves God and the world. 
And you've got to be prepared to pay a huge cost for that. He, himself, is prepared to die in order to love God and the world as much as it takes. Are these people who want to see him prepared for those consequences of meeting him and knowing him? Those who love their life are not going to get anywhere, he says, if they're only interested in what they can get out of it for themselves, they're not going to get anywhere. But those who are prepared to let go of their own life will save it. Are you prepared to pay the cost, he says, because that's what he's prepared to do. One of the difficult sayings in the gospel passage we heard is where Jesus says, those who love their life, or is it those who hate their life, will save it. That's a very Jewish way of talking. If a Jewish person wants to say, I love X more than Y, they will say, I love X and will hate Y. It's a way of giving a contrast. That's why I just paraphrased it for you. If you're more interested in looking after yourself, you're going to lose your way. If you're interested in not looking after number one, but loving God and other people, then you'll find your way. And that's what Jesus is prepared to do. He's prepared to pay the cost of loving God and the world to the end. He's prepared to face and absorb all the evil in the world, all the evil that can be thrown at him. Because when human beings come up against the huge love of God, we tend to react to it by lashing out at it. Sad but true. When we come across the enormous love of God for the world and for us, we often respond by lashing out at it. We don't want to be loved when it comes down to it. We don't want to be loved that much because being loved that much means that we're not going to be fully in control of ourselves. If we are overwhelmed by the love of God, we're no longer in control of ourselves we're no longer in control of our lives. That amount of love will change us. Unconditional love will change us uncontrollably. And we panic when we come up against love like that. This is what sin in us does to us. We panic when we come up against the love of God. We have a tendency then to try to forget about God. We have a tendency to try and obliterate God's love. We have a tendency to try and get rid of Jesus. And forget all about it. Because we don't want to be loved that much. 
because we don't want to be changed that much. And Jesus knows that. He knows that if he loves people with the love of God, he's going to get the kickback. He knows that this way of loving people and showing God's love for them will involve his death and a barbaric death at that. And during this Easter period, try reading through the whole account in one of the Gospels of the events of Jesus' death. And just imagine what it must have been like. Jesus knows that loving people with the love of God will involve him going to a barbaric death. He knows that it's only when he's lifted up on a cross, to use the language of the reading we heard earlier on, it's only when he's lifted up on a cross that the glory of God's love will be fully revealed. And that's a paradox, of course. Love is life-giving, but it's only when he's lifted up on a cross that the full extent of how much he on in God's name is prepared to love people it's only then that it will be revealed and Jesus doesn't want to go this way he might be God's son but he's also fully human he doesn't want to go that way he says in John's Gospel's version of his prayer in Gethsemane, save me from this hour. Don't take me down this route, God. He's not rushing after martyrdom, but he is prepared to pay the cost of loving with God's love. He knows that this is what loving God and the world will involve. Going to his death. And then he also says that in some sense or another, if that's true for him, it's also in some sense going to be true for those who want to see him and meet him and know him and follow him. So in a sense he's saying to those Gentiles, do you really want to see Jesus? Or would you prefer to get rid of him? And what about us? Do we really want to see him? if that's what it means? Or would we prefer to ignore him or get rid of him? It's probably a bit of both because we're mixed up people. And one of the interesting things in that gospel passage is that even when God speaks from the heavens in that story, People have different understandings of what's going on 
Very few understand that it is God speaking and why God speaking. Some think it's some sort of angelic message from God. And some think it's just a roll of thunder. People struggle to interpret and to understand and they have mixed reactions. The interesting thing is that when Jesus gets this request from these Gentiles, he doesn't reject them. He doesn't refuse to have anything to do with them. But nor does he simply give them a photo opportunity with him as a celebrity. Instead, he challenges them and he challenges us about the cost of loving. Jesus recognises when this request comes to him that this is a pivotal moment. Just a chapter earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus has said that he is the good shepherd and that he must give up his life for the sheep. There's Jesus being prepared to understand what the cost will be again. But he also, when he said that, knew that everyone who heard him assumed that the flock of sheep that he was talking about was God's chosen people, the Jews. And so he added another sentence in John's Gospel. He said, yes, and I've got other sheep who don't belong to this flock, and I'm going to have to deal with them as well. And Jesus knows that to encounter everybody in the world, to love everybody in the world and in history, the particular earthly phase of his ministry is going to have to come to an end. It's only when he's been crucified and raised to new life, when he's no longer trapped in a single human body, it's only then that he's going to be able to relate to the whole world. It's only then that everybody be able to relate to him and to come to him. To put it in the image he uses in John's Gospel, the seed of his earthly body is going to have to turn into the plant of his resurrection body. And his resurrection body, of course, includes the body of Christ, the church. The Gentiles are indicating to Jesus, when they come to him, they're indicating to Jesus that the time is coming when the flock of the other, the sheep of the other flocks will have to be brought in. That the time of his earthly phase of his ministry is coming to its end. It's worth thinking about where this encounter, this request from Gentiles to Jesus, takes place. It's in the middle of the huge temple in Jerusalem. It is Passover time, 
one of the major Jewish festivals of the year. A Jewish historian from the time of Jesus talks about how at Passover time there could be as many as 2,000 sacrifices taking place at once with 10 to 20 males gathered around eating the meat of the sacrifice in each case. This was what the Archbishop of Canterbury a couple of weeks ago at St Paul's Within the Walls called a religion factory. This was a place where the end product was to make people feel better. Where the end product was to keep religion going. And lots of people were attracted by this and lots of non-Jews came to look. But they were not allowed into the parts of the temple where the sacrifices took place. So these Greek-speaking Gentiles would only be able to be in a, one particular court called the Court of the Gentiles where the sacrifices did not take place. So they're interested in the Jewish God, they're interested in the Jewish religion, but they're not able to take part in its sacrifices. <clears throat> but they have begun to recognise that in Jesus they might be able to relate directly to God without the sacrifices. And that's why Jesus doesn't reject them. They don't understand fully what they're asking, but they've begun to grab hold of an important truth. They turn to Jesus because they think that they can see God in Jesus and know God in Jesus. <clears throat> because you don't need animal sacrifices to be at one with God. In a sense, animal sacrifices enabled the human beings to feel better and they rather hoped that they made God feel better. But in a sense, Jesus is saying, as he said when he went into the temple and stopped people selling animals for sacrifice and stopped people changing money to make the sacrifices keep going, he was not simply saying people are cheating here. He was saying this way of religion has come to its end. And when he said something as dangerous and radical as that, that's why he knew he was going to end up on a cross. In a sense, Jesus was bringing to an end any need for animal sacrifice. He puts an end to sacrifice and replaces it with his own self-sacrifice in love. He becomes, as the Gentiles have begun to see, a new bridge builder between earth and heaven. And if you want to think in those sort of ways, as Jews did, 
In a sense, he's replacing all their priests and all their sacrifices with himself. In a sense, it's his self-sacrifice of love rather than an animal sacrifice. And in a sense, he is like a high priest. Not like the ordinary high priest. The letter to the Hebrews that we heard goes back to a shadowy figure who barely gets a mention in the Old Testament who seems to have been a priest for none of the official priestly families. Melchizedek. And the letter to the Hebrews is saying, Jesus puts an end to all that. If you want to think of him as a priest, he's a high priest. And if you want to know what sort of a priest he was, he was like Melchizedek. But the whole point is that Jesus is a new bridge builder between earth and heaven without the need for sacrifice. Because it is all about love. And the challenge is, for us as for those Gentiles, do you really want to know that love? Do you really want to know Jesus, if that's what it means? Do you really want to see him? Because if you do, he is here for you. Amen.